Welcome to summer and welcome to this brand new series that we're kicking off called Bulletproof. So excited for the next four weeks as we dive in on this idea together about being protected by God against the enemy of our souls. Uh, Because for each one of us uh, that is a follower of Jesus, we can expect to be in a fight that's much bigger than us. And if we don't know how to be prepared for it, it can take us down. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks, and I'm excited for this. Today, I'm going to just kind of set up this series, and then in the three following weeks, we'll kind of get into the meat of it. Well, it was probably about, I don't know, 20, maybe 21 years ago that I was in college, and uh, you know, I went to a Christian Bible college, went to seminary, and during that time, um, I was also involved in some music, and I'll never forget, and I know some of you are shocked when I say 21 years ago because I'm only 25, and it's impossible I was, I was an early, you know, I was just a brainchild. You know, I was in college way early. But 21 years ago, I got asked to, like, do some music in one of our chapel services. We would have a chapel service every day, and we'd have music. And so I was asked to do the music, and I was like, oh, man, this is so great. And so I remember uh, leading the music time from the piano and singing and doing all that. And actually, the music time went great. And then a speaker came up, and we always had a guest speaker and a rotation of speakers. And so he got up at the end, and he had asked me if I would come up and play at the end. And I said, sure, no problem. So I came up, and I am playing lightly underneath him while he is getting ready to move like everybody into a time of prayer. And all of a sudden, he gets this great idea to sing a song that I don't know, that I've never heard of before. And he turns to me, and he says, you know that song, don't you? no, I don't know that song. I don't, I, I don't know that song. I never heard that song before. And, and he's like, well, you know, are you sure you don't know it? And he's going on and on. And this is this back and forth happening, you know, in real time. And just, I was mortified, you know. And so we ended up singing the song a cappella. I just stopped playing and I said, why don't you sing it then? I don't know it, so you sing it. And then he sang it really bad. And it was just whatever. It was just an awkward day. Uh, maybe you've ever had an unprepared moment like that. I, I just thought to myself, man, if someone had told me what to expect, If someone had prepared me, if someone had given me the song in advance, it could have saved the moment. And the same way throughout your life as a follower of Jesus, whether you realize it or not, whether you've been told or not, you are in a battle that you will be waging until the day you die. And it's all about preparation. It's all about being prepared. And it's not a fight against yourself. It's not a fight against others but a fight against the devil and the evil that he uses in this world. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, you may not think of it in these kinds of spiritual terms, but the truth is we all know there's evil in the world, don't we? Right? All you have to do is turn on the news this week right, to see what happened. The mass shooting, 12 people dead. I mean, just a horrific scene. You can turn on the news any day of the week and you can see that there is evil going on. And I think over the last 15 years or so, it seems that there's, like never before, there's been this interest in, in evil and this interest in horror and gore and terror and graphic depictions in movies and TV shows and books. And before this influx, I mean, there's always been stories about, you know, darkness or the mysterious, uh, but, it, but it was much more on the fringes. And there's never been before the same kind of fascination and evil that there is today. And I just wonder, why is that? And at the same time, we have a culture, I believe, that in large part has dismissed the very idea of there even being a devil. We just kind of poo-pooed that idea away. We've called it fantasy. Maybe it's something made up. 
not something literal, but something we use when we talk figuratively. In fact, some of you might even say, if you're here today, you might say, man, I'm even uncomfortable. You talking about there being a literal devil because it sounds so superstitious. I mean, come on, these are modern times. Surely we're past this idea of there being a real devil. And so then the question becomes, why then are we so fascinated with evil? Trying to define it, trying to understand it. Uh, Why is Time Magazine putting out covers like this? It says, the science of good and evil. What makes us moral? Understanding the dark side. Or this one. And you might not be able to see it very clearly, but it just says evil in large letters. And then it asks the question, does it exist? Or do bad things just happen? It's a great question. Or maybe this one. It says, what makes us good or evil? What makes us good or evil? See, people... And I think all of us included, we want to know how to deal with the terrible evil that's in the world today. We see it happening at a rapid pace. We see this going on in our society. And it's like we know evil exists, but we don't know where it comes from, and we certainly don't know what to do with it. Well, we believe that Jesus was a man that predicted his own death and resurrection. And for anybody who can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, we just kind of go with whatever they say, right? I mean, we're just like, hey, whatever you say, we're good with that, right? And so the question becomes, what did Jesus say about evil? What did Jesus believe about evil? And more importantly, what did Jesus believe about the devil? That's important to know. Well, first of all, Jesus tells us that the devil is as real as you and I. Real being. And here's some other descriptions that Jesus gave to the devil in Matthew 13, called him the enemy and the evil one. In John, he's called the prince of this world or a liar and the father of lies and also a murderer. And we're also going to read in just a moment that he's a thief. The devil was real. In fact, after Jesus was baptized, he was led into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil himself. It was a real encounter, one that was difficult And trying at the end, angels came and ministered to Jesus as he did not waver in the devil's attempts to overtake his power. And Jesus tells us in John 10.10 that the devil has a plan. Now, this is not great news. That the devil has a plan for your life. The devil has a plan for my life. And so what do we do with that? Anybody who's a follower of Jesus, look at this, John 10.10. Jesus said this, that the thief, being of the devil, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I may have life and have it to the full. So think about this for a moment, that the enemy of our souls has a plan. Just like God has a plan for your life to live it to the full, the enemy also has a plan. And what is his plan? To steal anything good that God wants to bring in your life, to kill your relationship with God, to destroy relationships and the things that, you've, that you enjoy about life. And ultimately, it's this eternal decision of who we're going to follow. That's the thief's job. It's the devil's job. And it kind of sounds like a battle, doesn't it? Right? You have good and you have evil. And you have Jesus and you have the devil. It's kind of a showdown. And the first fill in your notes is this, that Jesus tells us that the devil is real And that we are in for a spiritual battle. The devil's real. We're in for a spiritual battle. And it's why over the next four weeks, 
we're going to learn how to become bulletproof together. Um, and in Ephesians 6, we read this passage about putting on the full armor of God. And maybe if you ever went to vacation Bible school growing up, maybe you went to Sunday school, your grandmama brought you to church, maybe this passage about the full armor of God is kind of familiar to you. Uh, maybe you can remember it on the flannel graph, you know, and, and you know, they kind of added all the pieces of armor, whatever it was. Um, but this passage that we find in Ephesians chapter 6 was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the followers in Ephesus. And it was written to them to give them a warning. And here's what's amazing, that the Apostle Paul, while he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he's in a jail cell himself. He's in prison writing this letter. This letter makes its way to Ephesus, and the believers there read what we're about to read more than 2,000 years later. And so I want to look at this whole passage first, and then we're going to come back and just examine a small part of it today. But I want to read this whole thing to kind of set up the whole series. And it reads this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, it's obvious throughout this passage that Paul is very familiar, right? Obviously, he's living in Rome, and he's very familiar with Roman guards. And uh, this is Roman. Everyone say, hi, Roman. And Roman's going to be joining us for the next several weeks as we talk about this. But Paul was very... Um, accustomed to and very aware of the different kinds of armor that people used to wear to protect themselves. And this is the mental picture that Paul uses as a metaphor for the spiritual battle that you and I are in. Remember, it all comes down to preparation, whether or not you're going to be able to defeat the enemy in your life. And so while we will spend the next few weeks kind of unpacking this whole passage of Scripture and applying it to our lives, today I want to focus on the first three verses of this passage. And so let's look at that again. Ephesians 6.10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now this is an interesting word, schemes. Paul is literally saying this, listen. The devil, he says it to you and to me and to the church in Ephesus. He says to all believers, listen, you are in the fight of your life. Why? Because the devil knows who you are and has schemes against you. And his plan is to steal and to kill and to destroy in your life and rob it of the full life that Jesus invites us into. And so Paul's saying, listen, if you want to be ready, if you want to be protected, then you have to understand how to put on the full armor of God because the devil's schemes are real and they're more active than you think in our life. 
And then he begins to go on to explain who and what we fight against. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time. The next verse goes on to say this, for, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, older translations replace this phrase, our struggle with this word, we wrestle not. I want you to look at this verse. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, this is an important distinction because when you're wrestling, you are up close and personal, are you not? I remember I did wrestling in about seventh grade. I lasted one year. I wasn't, I wasn't very good. Uh, but when you wrestle, it's, it, you know, it's that hand-to-hand combat. I mean, we're, we're in it. You're not taking out an arrow and shooting someone from a distance. You're not taking out a pistol and firing away. No, no, no. When you are wrestling, you are up close and personal. And Paul wants us to know that when we encounter the schemes and attacks of the enemy, it is oftentimes going to be up close and personal. But he says, I want you to understand something. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wow. I mean, when you read that, it kind of sounds a little terrifying, doesn't it? Or at best, a little confusing. Like, what in the world does Paul mean by this? Well, first of all, Paul doesn't, exactly mean what he says here. Uh, Follow me just for a minute. Paul, for example, was whipped. He was stoned. He was persecuted. Paul was imprisoned by flesh and blood people. Right? Paul certainly wrestled with flesh and blood, just like we wrestle with flesh and blood. But what Paul is actually saying here is that we wrestle not only with flesh and blood, Will you encounter flesh and blood attacks? Absolutely, right? Will that take on in in, in person form? Absolutely, but we wrestle not only against that. Because Paul is saying, listen, when you look out into the world, when you look at war, when you look at poverty, when you look at injustice, when you look at all the terrible things that are happening in the world, he says there is something that goes beyond the natural. There is something that is evil, there is something that is at work here that is beyond humanness. It's not only flesh and blood. There's something cosmic. There's something supernatural. And maybe you've experienced this before. And I know I have. I I have spent many, many trips over to third world countries. And nothing more devastating when you see little kids picking their next meal out of a trash can. When you see them living in slums and, and you see the injustice in the world and it's so heartbreaking, and you see these kids who are sold into slavery, slavery are sold into a, uh, the sex trade. Devastating. You know, when we think about the Holocaust, when we think about 9-11, when we think about the endless wars around the world, when you look at slavery in our own country, I mean, pick any evil, pick any horror you want. This is what we do when we encounter horrors and evils like this. We begin to ask questions like, How could this happen? Who would do such a thing? How could they? Right? Very normal for us to ask those kind of questions. Why would they do that? Why would they allow that? And here's the reasons. Here's the reason that we very naturally ask those kind of questions when we see evil and horror around the world. And it's this. That the mainstream thought in the 20th century is that evil is really just the result of something natural and that we could cure it. 
Here's the mainstream thought in our culture when it comes to evil. That it's something natural. And we think that we could cure it. And you and I have done this as we've watched the evening news. As we watched someone walk in in Virginia Beach into his workplace and kill 12 people this week. We immediately begin to ask the questions, how could they? What was wrong with him? How could it be? And as a culture, we say it's the result of an unjust social systems, or it's the result of bad parenting, or it's the result of bad brain chemistry. We have believed in our culture that we can cure it. And what has happened is that we have thrown away our intellectual resources for dealing with evil. Because we have said that we only wrestle with flesh and blood. It's got to be human. It's got to be up to us. We are to blame. And so what our culture has done, we've gotten rid of the idea of original sin. We've gotten rid of the idea that there's a devil. We've gotten rid of the idea of spiritual forces. And now, come on, look up here, look at Now we are baffled by the fact that there is clearly something beyond what we can manage or control, but we have no way of dealing with it now. We don't know how. We don't have answers for it. We can't explain it. Uh, Back in the early 90s, I watched a movie I probably wasn't supposed to watch called Silence of the Lambs. Maybe you ever saw that movie. I had to like sneak to watch it because I would have never been allowed. And even as I'm watching, I'm like, why am I doing this to myself, right? I mean, I I don't like that scary stuff. I just don't like it. Uh, But before it was a movie, it was actually a book. And it talks about this character, Hannibal Lecter. He's this incredibly evil man. And so you have Hannibal Lecter on one side, and then you have Officer Starling. She's the young female detective who at one point listens to the incredible things he's saying and says something along the lines of, What could have made you like this? What happened to you that you're like this? And that's actually an incredibly modern question. Every time we turn on the evening news, we say, what could have happened? How could someone do this? What do we do with it? How do we stop it? What are the answers? It immediately assumes Every time we ask these questions, it immediately assumes that we are only wrestling with flesh and blood. What biological thing happened? What sociological thing happened? What psychological thing happened? There has to be an answer and a reason. And Hannibal Lecter looks at her and says this, which I think is actually pretty profound. He says, nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Officer Starling, you've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? It's pretty profound. And author Andrew DeBanco says this of what Hannibal Lecter just said. Of that quote, he says this. He says, these words are the epitome of modern horror and the modern dilemma. It's the horror of knowing we cannot answer the monster's question. What do we do with evil? 
What do we do with it? Your next fill-in. How do you answer the question of evil in the world if not for a spiritual enemy? Because I don't know about you, I don't have an answer. I don't know how why it could happen. I don't know how someone could. I don't know. But how do we answer this question of evil in the world if not for a spiritual enemy? And to bring this beyond the evening news into something much more personal, the truth is some of you have been hurt and shattered by evil that someone has done to you. There are people in your life that have done things you didn't think they were capable of. You married someone and you can't believe what came out of them. You thought you raised your child right and you can't believe some of the choices they've made. Maybe there are things that you've done that you can't believe you've done. And five or ten years ago, you could have never imagined that you'd be sitting here doing what you have done. And the reason that we couldn't imagine it is because our only paradigm has been flesh and blood, flesh and blood, flesh and blood. Interesting. But Jesus... And Paul says there is more to the evil we encounter than just flesh and blood. Your next feeling here, that there is an actual spiritual battle taking place for our minds and hearts, and the warning is we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. Now, doesn't Roman look prepared here? Roman looks pretty prepared. He's prepared for an attack. He's prepared for evil. Interesting to think of this. That when you think back to the very beginning, come, come back with me, go back to, you know, Sunday school days, Genesis, the very beginning. Genesis 3. You have the snake, you have Adam and Eve, and you have the apple, right? And here's one of the biggest takeaways from that entire story. Is that the Bible talks to us about the snake. Who is the devil in this story? That the snake is the most subtle beast in the garden. He's the most subtle beast. It's one of the most important takeaways. Come on, you know how the story goes. The snake never reveals its true intentions, does the snake. The snake doesn't say, hey, if you eat of this apple, man, all hell is going to break loose, right? I mean, this is going to be terrible for you. In fact, all of humanity is going to point back to this moment and say, how could you and why would you, right? I mean, you've really screwed us over here, right? I mean, don't take a bite of the apple. But the devil doesn't do that. What does the snake say? Oh, come on. If you just take a bite of the apple, you'll be as smart as God. You'll be as powerful as God. And he doesn't want that, and that's why he doesn't want you to eat the apple. Right? And as gullible as we are as humans, Eve said, oh, okay, sounds good. I'll take a bite. And she brings it to Adam, and Adam takes a bite. And we've been on a downward spiral ever since. You see, here's the thing about evil that we have to understand as we set up this whole series. Evil, your next villain. From the very beginning, the Bible tells us that evil never comes openly or obviously. It's always hidden and intertwined with lies. That's how evil works. It's how evil starts. It's how it forms. It's how it is lived out. It never comes openly. The men that flew those planes into the World Trade Center did not wake up one morning and think to themselves, huh, I got nothing better to do. I think I'm going to go drive a plane into a building. They didn't think that. 
it was a series of hidden and lies that the enemy used to deceive and deceive and deceive. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm gonna, I, I've decided I'm going to have an affair today. It doesn't ever happen. It's a series of hidden things that the enemy's doing, lies that the enemy is giving. That's how it works. It's not open. It's, it's not obvious. The motives are always hidden. This week in Virginia with the shooting, or you, you hear about these school shootings. No one wakes up one day and says, I'm going I'm to go do that. No, 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 it always starts small and it starts subtle because that's how the devil attacks our life, very subtly. He never shows up one day and says, hey, how about you make some decisions that will destroy your life? He never said that because if he said that, guess what? We'd never do it. But he has a scheme going and his scheme is to kill and steal and destroy anything in our lives. And So how does he do it? Very subtly. One small thought, one small decision at a time that builds and builds and builds until finally the enemy says, gotcha. That's how it works. And that's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, be, what's that word? Be what? Be alert and of sober mind. He says, come on, you got to get battle ready. you got to know that the enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Will you be ready for it? Will you be able to see it? Will you sniff out the not-so-obvious when it comes? And then he says, be of sober mind. you know what that means? Being of sober mind means understand the seriousness or the gravity of the situation. Paul says, I want you to understand. Peter says, I want you to understand what is at stake here. I need you to be alert and of sober mind to understand the gravity of what the enemy is trying to do to you. Be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him. Stand firm. And next week, we're going to begin this holistic approach that Paul gives us to do exactly that. But before we go today, I know that when we talk about such like a heavy topic like this, the enemy wants to use fear in our life. And so let me leave you with a little bit of hope. And it's actually found in the first verse of this passage. And if you read it too quick, you'd miss it. And so again, we go back to the very first verse of this passage in Ephesians 6, verse 10, and it says this. Paul said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not yours, his. See, the battle's not ours alone, and it certainly won't be won in our own strength. It's admitting and recognizing that we need God's power in our life. It's recognizing I can't do it on my own. God, I'm surrendering to you. God, I've tried to do it on my own. I can't. I'm not big enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. God, I need you. That is the basis for all spiritual growth when someone can have enough humility to realize they need God in their life. And that's the beginning and the first step, your last villain. It's the first step in overcoming evil. It's to acknowledge your need for God's power in your life. That's the very first step. 
saying, God, I need your help. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. So would you be able to do that today? Would you be able to recognize that, yes, evil's bigger than you, but that you have a God in heaven who is bigger than any evil you could face? Now, as we get ready to close, I just want to speak to the skeptic for one second, and then then I'm done. Because as we talk about God's power and overcoming evil, maybe you would say, Ryan, how can that be? What if actually the tables are turned? What if actually evil is an indication that God doesn't really exist? Because how could he let it happen? That's a great question. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis who wrote this book, Mere Christianity, and was a former atheist. He did not believe in God but came to faith. And this is what he says. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. In other words, he said that was my basis for believing there was no God. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. That's powerful and impactful. And this is where the argument of evil as evidence against God's existence actually boomerangs into an argument for his existence. That if there is an ultimate moral standard, if there's an ultimate moral law, then there must be an ultimate moral law giver. Someone that has orchestrated it all. To understand that without his moral law, we wouldn't even know what evil really is. And without his spiritual comfort, we wouldn't be able to endure it. So how do we have hope? And how do we have comfort to overcome evil in this age? We have it because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was buried in the grave, evil thought it had won. But three days later, Jesus revealed to them and to all of us that he had the power over the grave, that he had the power over the evil one, that his power is greater than anything the devil could throw our way. So while we acknowledge the reality of evil, we also acknowledge the power of God. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to learn how to live in that kind of protection. Sound good? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want to be naive when it comes to the evil that's happening all around us. We don't want to dismiss it as anything other than what it is. That there is something spiritual going on beyond our humanness. And you've instructed us to pay attention to it, to get prepared for it, and to fight against it. And we'll admit, God, we need your help if we're going to do it. We can't do it in our own strength. But I thank you that you've already given us the tools We don't need to go find out. We don't need to go find some new armor. We just need to put it on. We already have it. You've already given it to us. And so I pray over the next few weeks that you'd help us to be able to apply the things to our lives that will help us recognize the enemy's attack on us and be able to defeat him before he defeats us. But today, God, we want to acknowledge our need for you. That your power is greater and that we can't do it on our own. And so would you help us, God, tomorrow morning as we get up, 
Or do we recognize the small little compromises the enemy's trying to bait us with to bring us into a place of failure? Would you remind us to pray and to stay close to you as our friend and our protector? May we know your word. May we be able to pray and talk to you and hear your voice. God, give us that kind of desire to know you in a way that we haven't before. In Jesus' name we pray.